friends, I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, and also on Sirius XM Channel 130. If you want to listen to our show as a podcast, go directly to your favorite platform or to the thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today on Conversations with Consequences, we have my very own Archbishop, Archbishop Winsky of Miami. He'll be telling us about his role as chairman of the Religious Liberty Committee at the USCCB, and also Luke Coppen. He is the Europe editor for the Catholic News Agency. He'll be joining us from all the way across the pond, telling us about what's going on in England with the reopening of the churches and other matters. But first, let's talk to my good friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, about some really exciting uh, news out of the Supreme Court. Welcome, Maureen. Great to be chatting with you. Well, I wanted to talk to you because we have these two cases just came out of the Supreme Court. This time, two clear wins for religious liberty. One of them about the Little Sisters of the Poor, who we have been following for many, many years. <laughs> it seems they're always back at the Supreme Court for something. My so, goodness, like a ping pong game. I know. You know what? Let's start with that. Tell us about the Little Sisters of the Poor, why they were at the Supreme Court yet again, and what it all means. Well, it's their third time at the Supreme Court, and thankfully, it's the third time they've won at the Supreme Court because of this ridiculous mandate from the Obama-Biden administration saying that the government needs nuns to be complicit in the government-run birth control, abortifacient, you know, contraceptive mandate and the distribution of these things, which obviously violates the religious liberty of these nuns, these nuns who serve the elderly poor. It's a 150-year-old order of these amazing nuns who serve the elderly poor in this beautiful and sacrificial way. So it's been such an outrage that the government has been legally harassing them these seven years, and they were dragged up to the Supreme Court three times. So finally today, they had yet another win saying that, of course, the government doesn't need to co-opt the health care plan of nuns to distribute contraceptives. Maureen, isn't it true that many women in the United States are simply not covered by this contraceptive mandate of the ACA? Oh, well, that's part of the irony and the frustration of this whole thing, that it was such an unnecessary fight, because when Obamacare passed, the Affordable Care Act, they gave exemptions to all kinds of organizations and and they grandfathered in all kinds of plans. So there are millions of women that aren't covered by this mandate. So why on earth would you not allow this little religious exemption for nuns and other religious and conscientious objectors. There was almost an element of animus in it, and especially in the way that the states insisted that, because uh, this is the reason the nuns were before the Supreme Court again, right? Then the states, uh, certain states insisted that they couldn't agree with the federal government not supplying birth control through these plans. 
That's right. The Trump administration had given the little sisters an exemption, but certain states, you know, you have politically ambitious state attorneys general and they filed suit yet again against the government saying that they didn't have authority to do to give this exemption. The Supreme Court said, of course, the government not only has the authority to give this exemption, but because of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and our First Amendment, the government ought to give such an exemption. Well, this was a clear win for religious liberty and just for all people of conscience, the government, when the government wants to do something, there's lots of ways to do it without burdening the consciences of good uh, Americans and, and really good Americans like the Little Sisters. So we had another win the same day. Really exciting. Both of these, by the way, were seven to two. Is that correct, Maureen? That's right. So that it, the fact that it wasn't this narrow 5-4 decision is really encouraging. So this is good news on many fronts and, you know, in a time when we need a lot of good news. So so the fact that it was a 7-2 to two decision shows that there's very broad agreement in the court because even some of the liberal justices said, of course, in this case, the, the, other, the second case that you're referring to, the Our Lady of Guadalupe case, two Catholic schools had declined to renew the contract of their fifth grade religion teachers because they weren't doing a good job of teaching the faith. And so it was a big win in that the Supreme Court said that absolutely a Catholic school has a right to hire their own Catholic school teachers and that the government shouldn't be interfering with that. Yeah, and a lot of our listeners like you and I, Maureen, have children in Catholic parochial schools and we understand very well that the reason we send our children to these schools is not because of the Supreme your academic performance, which is wonderful, but because the entire school is uh, promoting the Catholic values and the faith that we find so important for our children's development. And when you insist that every teacher on the school grounds is able to communicate that, then what you're doing is you're giving the parents and what, what the parents want, the reason we make so many sacrifices to send our children to these schools. And again, this is our right as, uh, as American citizens to have this kind of autonomy in our religious institutions. So thank you so much for joining me, Maureen, talking about these two great wins at the Supreme Court. Sure. Great wins. Very exciting. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I get to interview Archbishop Thomas Wenske of Miami. He was just recently appointed chairman of the U.S. Bishops' Conference Committee for Religious Liberty, an important post, especially in this day and age. Welcome, Archbishop Thomas Wenske. Thank you. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Well, I'm very excited to have you. We are both here in Miami as as we speak on the phone. You, Archbishop, are a native of South Florida, which I think is pretty rare in Miami. Maybe our listeners don't know this, but almost everyone in Miami is from somewhere else. But you happen to be a native of South Florida. And I do believe that you attended our local seminary, St. John Vianney. I did. At the early age of 13. I read about that and I was very impressed and it always touched me that you entered the seminary when you were so young and your vocation was so clear. Yes, and I then I went on to St. Vincent de Paul Seminary in Boynton Beach, where I was uh, studied theology, and from there I was ordained a priest in 1976, the bicentennial year. Oh, that's wonderful. And then you became, well, you went through, you, you did several things of importance, but eventually you became the Archbishop here in Miami in 2010, and we've, I, I think in Miami we're very privileged to have you, we're very blessed, 
And I've heard you give wonderful homilies, especially at confirmation masses. I've been to several confirmation masses where you've been the celebrant. And you've always, I think you've given the confirmandi real food for thought. Um, you often talk about very important issues with them, even including religious liberty. Well, confirmation is a time for the young people to uh, personally assent to their faith and to ask the Holy Spirit for the courage to, to live it coherently. So they need to be challenged. We all need to be challenged. Well, I love that you give them uh, real meat for reflection. Sometimes I think uh, prelates and priests underestimate our young people who really are capable of great things. Young people, as you as you were able to enter the seminary at 13 and make up your mind about something so important, young people even nowadays are able to understand important concepts and go out to the world and, and bring truth and beauty to it. Thank you. Archbishop, in the introduction, I mentioned that you were just named chairman of the U.S. Bishops Conference Committee for Religious Liberty. And that is a really important spot, of course. But I think nowadays it's an even it's a hot seat. We are faced. I'm sure you're feeling it, too. are faced with strong currents against our Catholic faith, uh, really any people of religion in the American culture. Do you find it a, a really interesting moment in time to be named chairman of that committee? Well, certainly it's a challenging moment <laughs> to be chairman of that committee. The committee is actually a very recent committee. It was uh, formed as an ad hoc committee about maybe eight years ago, and uh, just maybe about four or five years ago uh, became a standing committee of the Bishop's Conference as the awareness of the threats to religious liberty became ever more clearer, especially when uh, we were faced with uh, some of the anti-religious liberty aspects of Obamacare and in the previous administration. So it is increasingly important. Religious liberty is under threat, not only in this country, but throughout the world. In other parts of the world, the threat is coming from what I describe sometimes as a hard despotism. And we see this, for example, in the Middle East, where Christians are being actively persecuted, some being killed and martyred for their faith, others being forced to leave the countries where they've had a presence for centuries. Uh, that's a really a hard despotism that we, uh, for that reason, we also you know celebrated Religious Liberty Week in the last week of June because that last week of June is framed by the feast days of several martyrs to religious liberty. St. Thomas More, St. John Fisher, Saints Peter and Paul, the first martyrs of Rome. And even though we celebrated during that week the Nativity of John the Baptist, and of course, John the Baptist was martyred. Uh, if we remember the context of his martyrdom, he was martyred because he was defending the truth about marriage. Religious liberty needs to be uh, defended when it is attacked and uh, harshly by hard despotism, by physical persecution and even martyrdom. But uh, we also have to be concerned about uh, religious liberty when it is expressed in a way that we could call soft despotism. And we see that more uh, mostly in the uh, democratic societies of the West, including this country. And so soft despotism is what happens when people are, are subject to discrimination, perhaps denial of promotion or a job or, or being subject to ridicule because of their religious beliefs. And, and certainly that's been uh, happening here in this country more and more. Your Excellency, in the last few weeks, in the last couple months, really, many Americans have felt that the problems 
with the coronavirus pandemic had a religious liberty side to it. While First Amendment rights were being respected for protesters and and people who wanted to gather to express themselves politically, it wasn't so easy to find an open mass or an open church or to worship, to go to confession. Now, you happen to be presiding as the Archbishop of Miami over what is right now a coronavirus hotspot. So you've had to thread that needle of demanding religious liberty for the right to worship, the ability to worship for your parishioners, and at the same yeah. time respecting. How how would, how difficult was that, and how do you see your role? Well, certainly the, uh, the decision to... Uh close our churches to uh, congregations to uh, public masses that happened uh, in mid-march was certainly was one of the most dis- difficult decisions i had to make in my in my life I'm but, sure. uh, and uh, it was one that bishops around the world reluctantly made and and that's because uh, we also uh, understand in our catholic uh, social thought and our catholic teachings the need to promote the common good the the need to promote the common good made that step right a, a reasonable step and something that we uh, we participated in and as as part of the, our duty, doing our duties as citizens. And of course, we we have begun to reopen. And in Florida, we 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 we've been reopened since the end of May, and we are celebrating masses publicly again, and we're doing so following the CDC guidelines of facial masks and uh, hand sanitizers, uh, social distancing, et cetera. And, and so uh, we have, I think we've been able to thread that needle. In other parts of the country, it's, it's been a, a bit more difficult, I, th- I think. We, we see, for example, a, a uh, dust-up right now between uh, Catholics that are serving in the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Navy that is saying that men in the Navy cannot attend Mass off base. And so they can't go to a local parish to attend Mass ostensibly because this is a measure to prevent the spread of coronavirus. And uh, the Archbishop for the Military Ordinate has expressed his uh, concerns to the Department of Navy, and, and that's something that's going to be continued to be discussed, and hopefully the Navy will make some adjustments to their policy here to, because it does seem to be a bit overbearing and not taking into account the religious liberty of people that are serving in the armed forces to protect the freedoms and the liberties of the American people. It seems to me that it's it, it's almost natural in a country where religiosity is becoming more rare, where people are, are identifying more and more as not religious, the nuns, not the nuns as in the sisters, <laughs> but the, the right. no religions. Uh, it seems to me rather natural that, that religious people's uh, desire to attend Mass, to receive the sacraments, Catholics, of course, aren't necessarily understood. Uh, when it comes to to making rules, do you think that I that's think, a natural sequela? Well, that's part of the problem when we have an increasingly secular society. People are unappreciative of the role that religion plays in the broader culture and in the and in the lives of their fellow citizens. Too often, religion is is reduced to uh, merely the sentiments, so, a, a kind of sentimentality, so that you know religion is something that you feel 
and uh, for us Catholics, it's, it's certainly it certainly involves our, our emotions and our feelings, but it is uh, something outside of ourselves. Religion is an objective reality. Uh, it's something that we uh, belong to, that we join, that we are associated with. It's not just uh, something subjective, but it is a it is a movement, if you will, of uh, people coming together because of the of the gospel. So, again. A secular world sometimes uh, fails to appreciate that, and they, at the same time, they sometimes uh, uh, do not recognize the, own, the the way that sometimes they express them in, in religious language, their own dogmas, if you will. Your Excellency, I wanted to touch upon a, a case that, that was just decided at the Supreme Court, which is the Bostock case, in which uh, our listeners understand that sex, uh, biological sex, was uh, repurposed to mean sexual orientation and gender identity. As the chairman of the Religious Liberty Committee at the USCCB, this must have uh, sent a tremor through you and through the committee because as Catholics, we have to run our institutions where sex remains a biological reality of two, right? Binary, male and female, and that has enormous anthropological implications. That's uh, right. Well, the, the, the Supreme Court uh, decision, which basically redefined the meaning of uh, of sex uh, is someone similar to that which redefined marriage as an institution between one man and one woman. And in both cases, uh, the judges, some of the judges voting in favor of these decisions said in their and their opinion that this would not interfere with the religious liberty of others that do not share that opinion. That remains to be seen as we go forward from this. And and so uh, these decisions will continue to have perhaps unintended consequences, but certainly definite consequences that we have yet to fully realize in our society. So it's a, it's a decision that we were very disappointed with. However, the same week, we had another decision, the Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue, which uh, we we applauded because in that, in that decision, the Supreme Court got it right. And, and when it uh, came on, the, on it made a decision in favor of religious liberty of, of religious people, religious parents to uh, to direct uh, the education of their children and and, and still participate in, in various state programs, voucher programs that would uh, help uh, uh, underwrite the cost of that education. Miami is a city of immigrants and uh, our local parochial school system is fantastic. I have to, I'm a, I'm a parochial school mom now at the same school for 23 years. I'm still a mother and the vice president of the Parent Teacher Association. I know many, many families recently arrived and not so recently arrived who would love to send their kids to a parochial school because they are afraid of the public schools and the dangerous ideologies that are taught there. Do you foresee any uh, uh, new openings for school choice due to this decision percolating down into the parish well, level even well that decision gives us a lot of a lot of comfort in the fact that here in Florida we have a a similar program a tax credit program like Montana does and what, what we call here in Florida is a step up program and the step up receives donations from corporations that they uh, contribute in lieu of in, in lieu of paying taxes on uh, their corporate income and this has enabled thousands of children needs-based children children from low-income families uh, to attend private schools including many of our catholic schools and so this is a uh, is a tremendous uh, boom in fact here in the archdiocese of miami we have 
over 5,000 children that are uh, participating in the Step Up program and other programs like the McKay Scholarships. So this has uh, been very helpful uh, in giving an opportunity for families of modest means to also benefit from the uh, advantages of a Catholic education. It will also be helpful for the Archdiocese, would it not, to, to help keep these wonderful schools open, especially after the pandemic and the terrible uh, economic fallout from that? Well, of course, uh, having these uh, scholarships means that parents, uh, the parents give the scholarships and then they come choose the school of their choice. When they choose the Catholic parish school, then they use that money to pay for the tuition. And, and, and that's, you know, the way Catholic schools operate. We operate on tuition because we don't get any, any direct tax uh, credits or tax subsidies from the local, state, or federal governments. And, and I have to say, you do a lot with very little because tuition is very reasonable and, uh, and the results are excellent. <laughs> and, and we save uh, taxpayers lots of money because even if you take the, the, the cost of the contributions of the step up, the number of kids coming to Catholic schools represent an alt, a, a, a net savings to the Florida taxpayers because of what, if we didn't have these Catholic schools, what, what it would cost to educate these these children in the public schools. So uh, we do a great service, both to the families of people that are in our Catholic schools, but uh, also for the uh, common good of the state. That's very true. And I think it's something we all have to not only keep in mind, but also communicate to other people that don't understand necessarily the connection. Uh, Your Excellency, shifting gears, this past weekend, you gave a beautiful mass uh, for unity against racism. And I listened to your homily. I wasn't able to be at the mass, but I listened to the homily and it, it was lovely. What were you trying to communicate? I know my, our listeners might not know that Miami has a long history of racial unrest. When I myself moved to Miami in 1980, there were uh, terrible terrible race riots that have left me scarred, for instance. <laughs> um, what were you trying to communicate in that mass? Well, again, it was a, an attempt to uh, show solidarity with, with our African-American population, especially our African-American Catholics. Uh, and I celebrated mass at a historic uh, African-American Catholic church, Holy Redeemer, located in Miami's Liberty City. And that church was first established in 1950. So it's a in 1950 is a is a uh, pretty old <laughs> place in Florida because uh, the city of Miami is only 100 years old, so a little bit more than 100 years old. So, you know, most of the growth here has happened in the last 60 uh, years or so. So uh, the, the parish is an important parish in our archdiocese. One of the parishioners there, uh, Adelie Range, who has died many years ago, but her and her husband were Catholic. Catholics uh, here in uh, South Florida, and in the early 60s, they led the, the efforts to desegregate the beaches of Miami. And so uh, this is a parish of, uh, you know, with some good history of, uh, of community service as well. Again, racism is a problem. It is a sin. It's, it's something that we cannot just dismiss lightly. The message of the Mass was unity against racism. And, and again, I, uh, I reminded people of the last book that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote before he was assassinated in 1968, over 50 years ago. And the book was entitled very simply, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? You know, chaos cannot be an option. 
and and that's what we're seeing increasingly in many of our city streets. We're seeing chaos, and 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 basically, we, we as Christians, as Catholics, are called to to build community and to seek the common ground that makes that possible. Racism, as I said, is a is a is a reality. It's the someone's called it the original sin of our founding as a nation, and we cannot uh, you know simply deny its presence or its influence in this context. I spoke in my homily about uh, denial not being a, a river in Egypt. It's more than a river in Egypt. And, and certainly, you know, uh, uh, that's, you know, that's a phrase that comes from AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And they, they, they want to remind people who are suffering from addiction that, you know, they cannot live in denial because if they do, that becomes an obstacle that prevents their recovery. You know, uh, anybody that's worked with, uh, or has family members that have been struggling with the disease of alcoholism knows that you don't do anybody that's struggling with addiction any favors by enabling their denial. And and so uh, America, uh, in many ways, has been in denial about racism, and so uh, we cannot enable that denial. Now, you know, when we uh, name racism as a sin, and, and it is, we condemn the sin, but we don't do so to damn the sinner. We want our condemning the sin as a to be an invitation to the sinner to conversion of mind and heart. And so this is this is very important. This is why, you know, the church has to be a uh, reconciled and reconciling community. We begin every Mass by saying, I confess to Almighty God that I have sinned. Before we approach communion, we say, Lord, I am not worthy, say, but the Word. And so uh, we have to have that humility of, uh, of of spirit to recognize our shortcomings our, and, and our need of God's grace and of God's healing to deal with the sin of racism and whatever other sins that we may be struggling with. Well, it seems to me, Your Excellency, that as Catholics, we are uniquely positioned to bring that kind of reconciliation and healing to this problem of racism that, of course, exists in all of us. It's not just, it doesn't belong to one race or another. So, Your Excellency, we're so grateful to have you as our Archbishop, and you've done wonderful things for Miami. Our listeners don't know, but you're a motorcycle enthusiast, and we love when you celebrate Mass in your biker boots. That's always very exciting for us. <laughs> Well, when I'm wearing my leg boots, is because I'm usually leading a uh, a ride right after mass, and I do that once a year. We have a a, a mass in which uh, motorcyclists from around the archdiocese come together before we head out on our ride. We celebrate mass, and it's it's impressive to see people in their leathers kneeling before the blessed sacrament and praying very piously and uh it i think helps to change the image that some people have about bike riders who usually are pretty nice people you know (laughs) (laughs) well we love that we love that here in miami archbishop so thank you very much for joining us today on conversations with consequences and if you want to learn more about archbishop thomas winsky's work here in miami or now for the bishops conference please visit miamiarch.org Coming up next on Conversations with Consequences, we speak with Luke Coppen. He is the Europe editor for the Catholic News Agency. He'll be telling us about how things are going in England with the reopening, specifically the reopening of churches, next on EWTN Radio.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and now we're joined by Luke Coppen. He is a longtime journalist and editor, now serving EWTN's Catholic News Agency as their Europe editor. Welcome, Luke. Well, thank you very much for having me. So we wanted to have you on because uh, we try to keep in contact with uh, those people across the Atlantic who we have a special relationship with. <laughs> and there's so much going on. There's so much going on all over the world. I know that in the UK, churches have now been opened, I think, as of when was that? July? Was it July 4th? Yeah, so churches um, churches reopened in on June the 15th for individual private prayer. And now they open on the 4th of July for public masses. But the situation is still developing, really, because there, there are many parishes, particularly smaller ones, that aren't able to reopen for, for public masses because the requirements are so stringent and it's impossible for them to fulfill them. So they kind of, uh, it's very patchy at the moment about oh, and go to mass. What kind of requirements are so stringent that a parish couldn't, a small parish couldn't achieve? For one, they need lots of volunteers, but the volunteers aren't allowed to be over 70. Uh, and in many parishes, a large number of people are over 70 so that counts a lot of potential volunteers already out of the picture and where there's only one priest which is many parishes it's very difficult for them to do everything that's required of them especially if they're also kind of over 70 (laughs) they have to take precautions as well not to come into contact with parishioners and many of them sort of find the whole thing so daunting that they're just going to hold off having public mass for a while you know, that's, uh, that's really interesting. We have a different approach here. The, the churches are, our churches are open, but maybe there's more uh, reliance on the parishioners themselves to, to get the job done. I mean, we have certain strict rules, of course, but it seems yeah. we don't have that rule that uh, volunteers have to be under 70, which the same here in the United States. So our best parishioners are elderly people who are retired and who have the time and the, the beautiful spirit you know, to devote themselves to the work of the parish. Yeah, they're, they're the pillars of the church, and it's it's a shame really that they can't sort of contribute at this time when they could, you know, really, really. I'm sure they they'd, they would love to do that, but of course the church is very anxious not to be a source of infection, and uh, you know there's several reasons for that, some of which I can speculate on. But yeah, I think the church is, is taking a very safety first approach to the reopening. Yeah, and of course some people think it's excessively uh, cautious. Um, that's a bit of a debate that we're having in the in the Catholic Church here at the moment. Well, I have a daughter in London, an adult daughter. She and her fiancé this weekend were very excited. They went to, out to brunch. They told me they went to Mass. I'm, I'm, waiting, I'm still waiting for proof. I always ask my adult children to send me pictures <laughs> so I can make sure it's true. And they also went to a private dinner club. Uh, it was open, so... I'm sure that it was a lot of fun and they were very excited because it's been a very long, dry time in England. People have been really staying home and everything's been enforced very stringently, more than the United States, I know. And it makes sense because your death rate is very high, 12%, according to what I read, compared to the United States of 4%. It's the highest after Spain and Belgium. So that's pretty scary in England, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, the death toll is the third highest in the world after the United States and Brazil. Uh, And that's really extraordinary when you compare the size of the populations the u.s population being you know, massively more than in the uk and same with the brazilian population mm-hmm. so for our population size we've had a massive death toll and there's a big discussion about why that happened i've done some reporting about the fact that many of the deaths took place in in care homes and there's a catholic doctor um, who's also a priest father patrick Bullagino, who's called for an inquiry a national inquiry into uh, why so many died in care homes and you know 
where were mistakes made and he believes it's just a kind of it's a sort of matter of conscience for him that he should speak out about this but does he think that the practices weren't proper in the care homes or is it or is it more a question of the quality uh, the people's health in the in the care homes that they happen to be sicker maybe than people in um, care homes in the United States or more numerous yeah I mean he has a very sort of precise reconstruction of what happened uh, but I think his main point is that the hospitals sent home sent many people out of the hospitals into the nursing homes um, because they felt that they would be safer there but it turned out that some of them were perhaps infected with coronavirus and then spread it in the nursing homes. I don't know if you follow U.S. politics very much, but that's the same thing that Governor Cuomo did in New York. He sent the infected patients back to, to nursing homes. He insisted on it. He made it mandatory and, and it became a terrible disaster yeah. in the nursing homes. So, so something similar. Something similar may have happened. Yeah, and this is certainly Father Patrick's um, point of view on it. It's uh, you know it's a strong one. I think there's there's sure to be an inquiry into into what happened because I don't think anyone here, probably including the government, would say that the right decisions were made on everything, <laughs> all the way along. Uh, and clearly, there's something went catastrophically wrong somewhere along the way. Do you think part of it um, could be the health system in England? I mean, I know from reading about it, but I also know from my daughter who lives there that it's hard to access care. I know that there's a national health service, but that doesn't always translate into at least in my daughter's experience, doesn't yeah. translate into the to seeing your doctor that week. <laughs> that doesn't always happen. Yeah. Well, here I would defer to what Father um, Policino says as well, because uh, he has more direct experiences of it. And he says that he believes that the NHS has been underfunded for at least, well, at least a decade. Mm -hmm. And there aren't that many... Uh, and there aren't enough people working in it, um, you know, frontline staff. And he also thinks as well that there's been a coarsening of attitudes towards the elderly within the NHS. And maybe he thinks this is sort of broader coarsening uh, of attitudes towards the elderly, you know, not seeing them as, as contributing to society in any way because they're not working and therefore their lives shouldn't necessarily be preserved with the same kind of vigour as you might preserve the life of a young person. Um, so he feels that all the underfunding and the attitudes towards the elderly were both factors in the very, very high death rate that, that we saw here. That lack of respect for the elderly is part and parcel of a secularist society, no matter where we are, right? In the United States, yeah. we are approaching that kind of secularism too, I think. Um, and when human right. dignity isn't part of the conversation, then human productivity becomes more important, right? I think it's also the atomization of families as well, because just my own observation that um, my wife's Polish uh, and in Poland, uh, the elderly often live with their families it's, and it's quite unusual for an elderly person to be out in a care home uh, separate from a family whereas in the united kingdom the reverse is true you know it'd be unusual for an elderly person to be staying with their younger family members uh, later in life um, so we perhaps the fact that we have so many elderly people in care homes uh, maybe that was a factor a, a difference um um, and the, uh, perhaps a reason why we had such a high death toll compared to other other European countries. Well, you know, that's um, very interesting. You know, that's I've thought about that, too. I've thought about how the lack of the the absence of the multi-generational home. But yeah. yeah, it's very strange. What, you know, I'm a Latin American, actually. And when I was growing up in, in a perfectly Latin American society, everybody I knew lived with at least one set of grandparents in their home. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you'd pass them around, <laughs> but nobody would think of putting them in any kind of care or nursing home. It was, yeah. it was thought to be a great failure, a lack of honor. Family honor wouldn't allow you to place your, your elderly mother or father in among strangers. So it, it is sad that we've gone to a different kind of uh, family structure. But you know, I wonder because uh, maybe sometimes older people deserve that, right? Because they raised their children and said at eight get out of here I want to live my own life I've seen that too so 
<laughs> maybe yeah. maybe when these yeah. old, these young people grow up they don't feel so beholden to their older parents yeah yeah i'm sure that's i'm sure the individualism sort of that's right right through um, the whole thing but you know on the other hand you know, who's going to care uh, better for uh, an elderly person members of their own family uh, you know on average speaking from very general terms a member of their own family uh, who's always around or mm-hmm. uh, a, me- a medical worker who has to care for many different people and you know has limited time uh, and you know there are far and if there are far too few of them you know what kind of care are they going to provide to these elderly people what about the fact um, that people don't have children um, what about the fact that, that we are what maybe this generation of older people that are in nursing homes, they, they chose not to have children uh, and ha- yeah. are very few of them. Do you think that could be a, a demographic issue in England? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's certainly true that we have a large number of elderly people and have a kind of top heavy uh, sort of demographic picture. Um, but how, how would you see that working, Gracie, in the... Can you sort of spell out a bit more? What oh, I just—I was just thinking. thinking if you have, you know, I have five children, for instance, and I figure they can—they yeah. can take care of me between them. Hopefully, they won't put me in a nursing yeah. home yes. <laughs> when I get very elderly and difficult. But it would be hard to imagine if you only had one child that that child could always uh, yeah. take care of his parents. Yeah, I know it can be an, an issue as well if there's, if there's, say, two children. You know, one of the children lives closer to the parents, so they're expected. There's a kind of um, debate about who should care for the parents, mm-hmm. uh, and it's sort of uh, it's kind of seen as a burden uh, that's to be taken on reluctantly. And you know, you get the short straw if you have to do it. You know, if you have to be near your parents. Sure. So these yeah. are interesting questions. Uh, I think that these are philosophical questions about what our life has become as a people, as a Western people, and uh, things that. That are coming to light with the coronavirus pandemic, with the lockdown, with all these uh, new things that we're having to confront, right? And and they're causing us yeah. to think: no, Why have we arranged ourselves this way? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's been it's been horrifyingly exposed, uh, and I think that's part of what's so dismaying when you look at the sort of the pandemic and now the aftermath of it. These these sort of really profound questions have been thrown up in the air. But you know, do we have the energy or do we have the sort of means of debating them as a society? Uh, and then uh, you know, take it further. Do we actually have the way of addressing <laughs> addressing these problems, or is everything so sort of horribly politicised that nothing can be done about anything? That sounds uh, more like that's a, that's a deep problem. That sounds more like, and I feel that we we do a lot of tinkering around the edges, but we don't always go to the root of things, right? And say, where did we go wrong? We have to yeah. we have to step back very very far back to say where we went wrong. I think with some of these issues, these bigger issues. Yeah. But so, here's an opportunity for the church, which does have this philosophical depth, to uh, to to speak out. Uh, and to make a contribution or to call at least call for this kind of debate about uh, you know how we're valuing human beings um, you know particularly the elderly um, and to offer some of its um, wisdom mm-hmm. um, to us in this moment I think there's there's a chance there if, if we can take it up uh, if you're just joining us you're listening to conversations with consequences I'm your hostess Dr. Gracie Christie and I have Luke Coppen um, all the way from England talking to me about all sorts of interesting wonderful things actually too bad we can't talk all day Luke that the, yeah. <laughs> instead of me sitting in my closet and you sitting in uh, England you know I wanted you we, we you, were, you were saying very truly that the Catholic Church has um, so much to offer in these foundational issues these ideals ideologies that that are leading us down certain paths without us uh, stopping and wondering where we're going um, but how can the church do that if the church can't stay open and we're having this problem here in the United States uh, parishioners aren't uh, 
necessarily contributing when they're watch- to their their monthly contributions when they're watching online people are are having trouble going back to mass because they're scared as they should be mm-hmm. in certain cases what's going on in England as far as parish support how are parishes staying open uh, again, this, uh, it was a very similar situation. Uh, parishes are struggling, uh, you know, first of all, let's say financially, they've taken a tremendous hit from parishes being closed. Uh, that's just, you know, purely at the financial level, they're going to be able to do fewer things in future um, because they lost all this money from people not being around. Um, and then there's the flip side of it, well, the more important side of it, which is um, the, the, obviously we've lost all the strength that we would have received from the sacraments uh, during this sort of terrible crisis of the past three months. Um, I don't know how you calculate that or what the long-term impact of that is, but surely that has to be a profound thing uh, on a spiritual level. Um, uh, Yeah, and... um yeah, do you do you have um, do you have support in in, here in the US? We yeah. got support from the government for to keep our parishes open through the the payment yes. protection uh, payroll protection plan, something like that. Some big federal program that I should know yes. all about, and it helped our parishes. Do you have that kind of support in the UK? Yes, we have had that. It's called furloughing, um, in which. Um, church workers were asked to, to stop working uh, and in return for doing that they the government paid i think it was 80 percent of their salaries um for this period of lockdown but again that was some people weren't entirely happy with that because um they felt that they uh, for example church musicians were furloughed so mm-hmm. they were required to stop working but they felt that they could have in some way contributed you know to online masses um, and they felt that their talents weren't drawn on you know that there wasn't this kind of creative use of their of their gifts oh um, that's true that's that so, happened that's so true they do have so much to contribute and you have had some good news out uh, of england uh, recently uh, i was reading in the news um things for catholics to be happy about and other pro-life people you had yes. a couple of amendments that were defeated in the house of commons yes. they were supposed to yeah. be attached to a bill aimed at combating domestic abuse if i got that right what were these two amendments that were defeated uh, they were they were amendments that would have sort of dramatically altered uh, abortion regulations in in England, which are already incredibly uh, loose. Hmm. Um, and just to put it in context, um, last year uh, record, we recorded the highest number of abortions ever really? <laughs> uh, since the legalisation of abortions. So yeah, 2019 was the worst year ever. So that's the context: and a huge number of abortions. And then a group of MPs wanted to further liberalise the laws um, by uh, allowing women to uh, administer at home. Medicine medical abortions on themselves uh, on a permanent basis because it's been allowed temporarily during the coronavirus crisis. Um, so they wanted to make that permanent. Uh, and the second amendment was to to de- effectively decriminalise abortion and therefore to sort of remove almost any safeguard on abortion up to about 28 weeks. So there are still some sort of, some, technically some re- regulation of abortion. Uh, uh, it sounds like you're, you're, you're a, it sounds like your abortion laws are less liberal than the United States. <laughs> Here abortion really, is allowed yeah. for any reason up until the day of birth, if you can believe it. Yes. Also, in that case, there is, there is there do remain some restrictions, and um, these date back to um, to a, a Victorian law, an Offences Against the Person Act, uh, which defined uh, abortion as a as a crime. So that remains in the statute books, and that is a a constant source of annoyance to abortion campaigners. Um, so they wanted to sort of sweep that away, uh, but thankfully, both these amendments didn't come to pass during the debate this week. Um, I think they were just so far out that they wouldn't have commanded the support of the majority of MPs, um, which 
is a, is a source of reassurance and a source of hope um, because um, pro-life victories don't come very frequently um, in Britain. Um, so we have to really celebrate them and when we see them and we have to try and build on them as well. And I think to try and build on the underlying Christian culture that there is in this country and just to try and show that, that the majority of people's aspirations would be to protect life at all stages uh, if they only sort of thought about it and they only engaged with the, the arguments. Are Catholics so are Catholics in England are they the leaders of the pro life movement or do are they just a part of a of a of a greater movement? They are leaders along with the evangelicals, hmm. um, who are also quite a, a dynamic force in this country. So uh, and so also similar well, to uh, here, also Muslims as well. Many Muslims are quite prominent in the pro life movement. So there's going to be an interesting alliance, I think, in future between Catholics and Muslims and evangelicals in promoting the cause of life, uh, along with some some Jewish leaders as well. I think truly kind of uh, uh, a truly mixed. Well, that is uh, really movement. interesting. But I I think anybody anybody who's uh, in touch with the transcendent, with the idea that there are values that are eternal, related yeah. to to our Creator, I think, and and all these all these people can make common cause in, in something so important. And also, maybe you can tell me if they make common cause with another great uh, success that happened recently in the UK, which is that your equality minister recently said no to transgender surgeries for minors. And apparently, yes. there was a lot of scandal around this because of mm. uh, very early intervention as early as 10 or 11 for girls and yeah. boys who have gender dysphoria. Yeah, I was interested um, at how this came about, really, because it, I think it was through um, some quite hard-hitting investigative reporting by the London Times, which surprised me because I thought that, that every, all the sort of establishment voices were in favour of, um, of of such things, in favour of uh, the, the whole kind of transgender platform. <laughs> um, but it seems that there isn't that that isn't the case. Uh, and so the Times published these front-page reports that got a lot of attention, and even um, another government sort of seemed fit to, in, to intervene and sort of not not fully take on board everything that transgender activists are campaigning for um, and that's that's quite revealing to me I think of, about people's real attitudes towards towards this that people do feel that uh, children should be protected mm-hmm. um, and they don't fully buy into the idea that you can decide what gender you want <laughs> you want to be at whatever age you want to be well as so, a doctor I'm, yeah, I'm 100% really sure that you can't change your sex <laughs> it's written into our DNA yeah. and every cell of our bodies so that is good news out of England and look, I wish we had more time, but it's been really great yeah. having some real perspective about life in the UK from you. And thank you for your time and your insights. We hope to have you back soon. And you can follow Luke Coppin on Twitter at Luke Coppin and make sure to check out his work at the CatholicNewsAgency.com for all the latest in life in the UK and the rest of Europe. So thank you, Luke. Yep, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I hope you I hope you managed to get out of the closet during the day. <laughs> I'm going to try. Let's see if the pandemic lets me. <laughs> Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be able to be with you, to enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. We can ask, why among the first apostles did eleven become great saints and one become the most notorious traitor of all time? 
Why among students of a poor inner city school will some from down and out circumstances go on to become famous surgeons and others end up in the slammer? Why do some children go on to become great athletes while others with the same coaches and even greater physical coordination and endowments never make it? One of the most basic reasons is because some people are more receptive and responsive to coaching, to education, and to grace. This is an important lesson for us all to grasp in order to understand better what Jesus teaches us this Sunday as he gives us his parable of the sower and the seed, one of his most important parables. Jesus teaches us crucial lessons about how to be a more fruitful disciple and a more effective evangelist, how to receive his grace and live in accordance with it. At the end of the parable, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear ought to hear, which is the ancient way of saying pay attention. By means of the parable, Jesus is going to help us take a soil sample of our heart to help determine how well we pay attention, how much we receive and respond to what he teaches, and all that he seeks to do in our life. To understand what he says, we first need to grasp a little about ancient farming. Sowers would scatter seed along thin plots before any soil had been turned over. The seed would land on four different types of earth. First would be hard land between the plots that would basically be the ancient hard sidewalks. The second, thin rocky soil that would have thick layers of limestone a few inches underneath the surface. Here the seeds would take and quickly germinate because the water would be retained within the few inches of soil. Because the roots couldn't penetrate the stone, however, the sprouts wouldn't be able to last for long, quickly dehydrating and withering as the rising sun grew in intensity. The third terrain Jesus describes is thorny soil, which is basically good earth that could have borne a lot of fruit if it weren't covered with thorn bushes and weeds that exhaust the nutrients of the soil so that good seed can't grow. The last type is good soil that Jesus describes bears much fruit. Just as a sower would scatter seed over all four types of earth, so Jesus scatters his word, his grace, his saving deeds over all four kinds of people represented by the respective soil samples. We see all four types among his first listeners. We see many of the scribes and the Pharisees have this hardened soil that totally resisted Jesus' words and the testimony of his miracle, closing their ears and their hearts to his message and actually accusing him of working his indisputable miracle, not by God's power, but by the devil. The evil one, as Jesus mentions in the parable, would come to snatch away the seed before it could ever get planted. We see the rocky or superficial soil and the people for whom Jesus worked the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish. They listened to Jesus for hours, then even followed him after the miracle along the entire upper lip of the Sea of Galilee. But most of them abandoned Jesus as soon as he asked them to believe something they found hard. It's teaching on the Eucharist, that to have life we have to gnaw on his flesh and drink his blood. They were willing to listen to Jesus' words for a time, but when he asked them to do something that made them uncomfortable, their faith withered and died. See the thorny soil and those who said that they would follow Jesus wherever he went, but they first wanted to bury their father or go on their honeymoon or, or inspect their new oxen. We saw it in the rich young man who came to Jesus as a good teacher and who kept all God's commandments from his youth, but who, when Jesus gave him a choice between storing up for himself treasure in heaven or holding on to earthly riches, chose the thorn bush of his worldly wealth. His materialism choked his growth in faith and prevented his seeking perfection together with Jesus. We see the good soil in people like the Blessed Mother, who as the ancient icons attest, conceived the word of God first through her ear before she conceived in her womb, whom Jesus praised for hearing the word of God and putting into practice, whose whole life developed as she said to God through the angel, according to God's word. See this good soil and so many other saints like the like eleven of the apostles, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, 
and others who bore abundant fruit by allowing God's work to happen through them. And we similarly see all four types of soil in people today. The ultimate point of today's parable is that God wants us all to receive his word and respond to him with good soil. Jesus tells us that good soil produces fruit, not just a little, but abundant fruit, 30, 60, or 100-fold, all huge numbers, according to the Jewish mentality. We have to ask, do we listen to God's word with the intention to bear great fruit? Sometimes we Catholics place more trust in Tylenol than we do in hearing God's word, receiving the Holy Eucharist. Many of us listen to worldly gurus more attentively than we do to Jesus. Many of us can't remember on Monday what the gospel was on Sunday. That's not a sign of a bad memory, but of a defective listening. The word of God is going to be a fruit. We have to listen to it with bearing fruit in mind. When we hear his words and forgiveness, we come to receive his forgiveness and share his mercy. When we hear his word on being peacemakers, we go out with the Prince of Peace to spread that tranquility of order with God and others. When we hear his word on seeking first the kingdom, then we begin to seek him in our study, our work, our relationships, our family life. When we hear his word to love him as he loves us, we begin immediately to look around ourselves and love others as he has called us to with the love with which we have been loved first. The last thing I want to say about this parable is what Jesus describes with regard to our sharing the faith with others. Many times we're discouraged because when we try to share the gospel, others don't receive it well. We may be sowing the seed of God's word as well as anyone can, but may not be a fruit because they may right now be too hard or too superficial or too concerned with pleasure, riches, or worldly anxiety to let the word take root and grow. We shouldn't take such setbacks personally because we can't control other soil. Some people will use their ears to hear and some won't. The only thing we can do is to keep sowing with eager longing, trying to help them eradicate the thorns and limestone and overturn the hardened soil. So we beg God's help to prepare the soil of their hearts to receive him fruitfully. The biggest factor as to whether at the end of life we will end up a saint is the type of soil with which we respond to the seed of all God's action in our life. This Sunday, Jesus wants to till, cultivate, and fertilize our soil. Let's give him full cooperation. Whoever has ears to hear ought to hear. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 